The mental dislocation is a wonderful feeling. Reality soup. A clove of garlic so big that I can barely get my hand around it. I feel like one of those farmers at the show. Have you ever seen the picture of the old man who grew the world's biggest onion? He's holding it so carefully, like a newborn baby but twice the size. And he's happy. His smile is so big that the rest of his face disappears. We just changed the bulbs in the kitchen, so I'm lit up like a sitcom character. 
I wish I had something funny to say about the garlic clove, but all I can think about is how small and happy I feel when I hold it. Look at the picture of the old man again. Something inside you has shifted, and now the onion isn't very big at all. Through some cognitive miscalculation, the onion becomes normal-sized, and the old man becomes very small. This is good. You feel like your head has come off your body. Let your mind rearrange the proportions of the world. Let your body dissolve into the soup of reality. Forced Perspective 1983, the Talking Heads release a concert film called Stop Making Sense. It's the one where David Byrne dances in the big suit and the audience goes nuts. This is an absurd suit. Powder blue, floppy, double the width of David Byrne. It comes from a joke about over-literalisation. His fashion designer friend said, well, David, everything is bigger on stage. The suit is so big that it barely touches his body. It hangs from its scaffolding, which is made from two webbed shoulder pads and a big webbed girdle. David Byrne is very interesting to look at because of the way he looks at other things. He responds to his own voice with strange expressions, like he's hearing his music for the first time as it's coming out of his body. His face is well suited to caricature, Extreme intrigue, extreme concern, extreme enthusiasm. He is like an algorithm making overly literal copies of human emotion. This is what feelings look like. Fans adore him. When the Talking Heads was starting out, Byrne lived in suburban Baltimore where he could watch business people going to work. He recalls an original thought. I should wear a suit. But the one he bought was too hot for the stage. And when he put it in the wash, it shrunk down to nothing. So he opted for something bigger. A double of the businessman doubled in size. He explained the choice in the film's DVD feature. Why a big suit? He responds, I wanted to make my head appear smaller and the easiest way to do that was to make my body bigger. Look again. The suit is normal sized. Burn is a drier shrunk head flopping out of the collar. Little lighthead. I can't predict when the guillotine will fall, but I know how to wear down the rope. If I listen to David Byrne, for example, I know there's a good chance my head will come off. That's because staying real and whole involves taking a number of concepts for granted, starting with skin, which is the concept that connects all the parts of my body. Skin. It covers me from head to toe. Except, Except a, a couple, couple tiny, tiny holes. holes. And, and openings. He's picking at the epidermis of the concept, exposing the soft mass underneath. Thinking until my vision splits, there is no smaller feeling than this. You've felt it too. Reality cracking and doubling. Your head as light as a bath bubble floating up, up, up into that powdery nothing. Your iridescent membrane wobbling. The whole world, soft and infinite like TV static. Sometimes thinking is a kind of decapitation. Thinking until your head is in a vat, this is thrilling to you. Thinking until words vanish off the surface of reality. For some reason you're chasing the feeling of complete derealization. Are you getting miserable? No. You're going on Twitter. You're looking at the stuffed bear with a tiny head. You're following an account that photoshops celebrities to make their body seem massive. You're retweeting the video of the adult man with his baby on his shoulders. Because he's done his coat up all the way, so it looks like his baby is an extremely tall boy. Requentin dissociating over the tree root, with its hard and thick skin of a sea lion. 
meaning disintegrating under close observation, like photons, like an afterimage clinging to the retina. All at once the veil is torn away. I have understood, I have seen, the feeble points of reference which men have traced on their surface. When burn peels back the skin of the world, I feel like a baby again, crawling on the surface of sense. Tall boy, like a small moon in orbit, I am drawn to big bodies. They are hyper-real and exact in a way that makes my body make sense. Nothing can hide behind the veil of smallness, not freckles or pockmarks or odd scars. Touching the wrinkled indent where my dad's big nose met his big cheek, he told me, you'll get this when you grow up. As the body exaggerates out into adulthood, it becomes more real, or less real. It becomes easier to read. When I was small, I liked the TV because there were lots of big heads and big bodies there. The industry uses the talking head technique for when a commentator's head swells up to the size of the screen and the body has to be cut off. A talking head usually belongs to somebody who is talking in doubles, no substance, all hot air, so the body is just a heater for the head. When I was small, my dad would tell me that the commentators were doing secret funny dances just out of frame. The body is just a heater for the head. In the suburb where I grew up, car dealerships were invariably manned by inflatable dancing tubes called tall boys, who I adored. Tall boys are the long fabric tubes resembling very big bodies. They are attached to an electric fan that blows air through the fabric, so they look like they're dancing. Inside, they are empty, embodied only by the heat that moves through them. They clock in at six metres and 500 grams, like my favourite puppets, Lala, Big Bird, Henry, Bear. There was nothing of interest happening underneath the costume, just hot air. Clock in. 1938. Nausea. Sartre's protagonist stares at a tree root and his language dissolves around it. That's to say, he dissociates. Dissociation vanishes all the metrics he needs to understand the root so that he can get a glimpse into the reality underneath, a soft amorphous wet, a glossy kaleidoscope. 1984, the civil wars, a tree is best measured when it is down. In Robert Wilson's 12-hour experimental opera, the tree turns into a boat, into a book, and then into a tree again. David Byrne was commissioned to write the knee plays. This is Wilson's term for the connective tissue between scenes in a show those in-between moments that make time for the behind-the-scenes set and costume changes. Track three is called The Sound of Business. It goes like this. They were driving south on the highway. Their business was in another town, bigger than the town they were driving from. Business took place during office hours in both towns. This drive was considered business. One of them was playing with the radio, slowly changing the channel from one station to another sometimes listening to both channels at once. On one channel, a man was talking to another man on the telephone. The other channel was playing oldies. What exactly does a businessman do? Business? The word feels bad for my brain. The word was thrown around a lot on my way to school. Flinders Street Station was my connecting link. Then I took the same line for six years and developed a small troop of train friends. The five of us would swing our legs from the platform and speculate about the businessmen. We would give them jobs. Accountant, consultant, secret agent. There was one man we saw just about every day in the, just about the same suit. 
He had a shiny head like a small planet on top of his huge padded shoulders. I think he was the man we appointed political advisor to the moon. Space Ambassador When I think about space, I have to think in cartoons. My mind won't render the real thing. It wasn't designed to process that much nothing. Question How big is the universe? Answer About 93 billion light years. I am 175 centimetres tall. Like a suitless astronaut, I get swallowed up by the ratio. Cartoons make space small and blue and manageable. Pluto is a dog, a star is a wish. Of course, David Byrne covered a Disney song. A dream is a wish your heart makes. The Walt Disney Company is the largest American diversified multinational mass media and entertainment conglomerate, and David Byrne is 183 centimetres tall. A body of that size would get digested quickly in space. Like space, Disney has a lot of power because it makes most people very small. It swells up over your life until you can barely see your childhood, just the shows you were watching. Do you remember the bigness of the cinema? All the faces of the audience floating and tipping up underneath the ectoplasmic glimmer of the logo. The castle and the flags and shooting stars, enhanced eight times from 1985 to 2020 like an amoeba under the microscope. Have you noticed that since Disney died, there's no shooting star in the pre-movie logo? Now there are fireworks, man-made celestial phenomena. Disney tamed the stars. Childhood means making unreal copies of real things. Cartoons, dress-ups, dollhouses, pins and needles rolling down the hill. Childhood means seeking out complete depersonalization. It is that dizzy float at the top of a roller coaster. It feels like the cart will keep going and leave you there until you look down. Like the wily coyote running off a cliff but staying suspended in space until he looks down and realises the situation he's in. Then his head floats in space for just a moment, occupying a small bubble in physics before he falls. Why do kids spin around until they're sick? They want to copy that high. TV static. And who can blame us for all this copying? A baby is just a little copy of its parents, but always cooler than them. Baudrillard's simulacrum is a copy of a copy that is mostly populated by sitcom characters, copies of real people that real people copy in turn. The copy is more thrilling than the real thing. My dad was a physics teacher, but still, my understanding of alternate realities comes from that fake physics lesson in Back to the Future. Obviously, the time, the time continuum, continuum has been disrupted, disrupted creating this new temporal event, temporal event sequence, sequence resulting in this, in this alternate reality. reality. English, Doc. Here, here, here. Let, me, let me illustrate. Andy rummages around for a blackboard, drawing up a timeline. Past, 1985, future. Then he points to the moment where the timeline skewed into this tangent. And he draws a second branch, turning out from the first. An alternate 1985. What if your body kept going on one timeline, but your head turned off to another? In middle school, a man came to assembly in a baseball cap, cool, and a suit, but serious. And he told us why drugs are bad. More specifically, he told us why drugs are uncool. He told us about a high school football player who tried marijuana one time and never came down. His body was still there, but his head wasn't. 
He lived the rest of his life suspended in a viscous daze, unaffected by the prosaic operations of everyday life. I know the football player is fictional, but I still think he must be kind of happy. TV actors are just bodies with no heads. In saying that, I mean they, they could be thinking about anything. I grew up wondering how Julia Louis-Dreyfus was really feeling. Like when Seinfeld gets a new kitchen with cabinets so low you can only see their torsos and she says, it's, it's like you're selling, selling movie tickets, tickets back, back there. <laughs> she could be thinking, you are selling tickets, Jerry. Making the world pay to watch you standing in your own fake kitchen. Copying lines from a script that were in turn copied from conversations you'd had with your monetizable friends. Then George comes in and is like, fitted hat day? That's what you asked for? That's what you asked Steinbrenner And then Jerry's like, cool. And then George is like, now I've got to figure out the different head sizes of 59,000 different people. And he's yelling, but he's not really angry. What if a pinhead shows up? i got to be on top of that. But he doesn't. He's not really worried about pinheads. He's just an actor. 1984. Found a job by the talking heads. Down that television. What a bad picture. A frustrated couple gives up on watching TV and they decide to write their own shows. Judy's in the surgery, inventing situations. And then they stop being frustrated because they're very successful. This is the sitcom mimicking the real home, and then the real home mimicking the sitcom, and the sitcom mimicking the home again, so that no trace of the original is left. In Bicycle Diaries, David Byrne writes about walking through a fake home in a TV set. He writes, The mental dislocation is a wonderful feeling. Have you ever been on a set? The lights are so bright that everything is funny. You can feel the original world dissolving like stock in a soup. The disconnect, he writes, is somehow thrilling. Heat death of the universe. Question. When will it be over? Answer. The heat death of the universe. When the universe stretches out so far that there's no more heat and energy and everything ends. This could happen in a few days. The big rip, the big shrink, the big crunch. When I think big freeze, I think of a deep frozen universe in the back of the freezer next to the garlic naan that's been there forever, it seems, suspended in time. Big freeze. In The Vital Illusion, Baudrillard explains the simulation by separating heads from bodies. He's talking about Phoenix's cryogenically suspended population, which is mostly decapitated. Their heads were cut off and frozen so that the brains might be brought back in the future. These heads are balanced out by all the headless animals being cloned in private laboratories so that scientists can practice for when they'll need to clone human bodies in the future. I recently learned that Walt Disney collected miniatures, over a thousand of them. Miniature trains, ovens, gloves, a miniature ship in a bottle, a miniature Bible, a miniature history of England. Tableware, wine, a candelabra, he made his own village using miniature hammers, screwdrivers, clamps, magnifying glasses, and he called it a land of little things. And in it, a little mechanical person ate the world's smallest hot dog. Then he made a music hall, and he called it Project Little Man. When your money gets big enough, time and space become smaller in proportion. Your hand becomes very big and the objects you use become very small. Suborbital space tourism for the rich. Longer lifespans, bigger houses. Walt Disney had so much money that he could cryogenically freeze his whole body. That last one is a rumour, but I still believe it.
Project Little Man. In the late 2010s, the internet developed a shrinking tick. The I'm baby catchphrase was born in 2017, and we grew out of it in early 2020. It was a satisfying response to just about anything. Did you file the taxes, honey? I don't know. I'm baby. That was real nonsense. The good stuff. I'm Baby expresses a bunch of logical fishes through language, identity, time, and social ontology. More than that, it provides a perfect out. It says, stop. You can't make me make sense of this world anymore because I've given up my ability to do so. I'm Baby. A search for I'm Baby in the group chat with my closest friends yields 40-odd results. It's as if we're all curling up together beneath the covers of the world dissociating into slush. I can direct you to 10-ish think piece writers who have psychoanalyzed the phrase to mush. Usually they diagnose infantilism, daddy issues. I don't think I'm baby was a Freudian thing. It was just funny to say I'm baby when we so clearly weren't babies at all. It's funny to scrap it all, to go back, 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 before logic, before sense. Before reason. I'm just a baby in my daddy's arms from these women's charms. I'm six foot tall, but I speak my mind goes crazy when I taste a sweet rabbit. Top heavy. The mental dislocation is a wonderful feeling. Are you getting anxious? No. You're just watching TV. You're looking at cartoons from your childhood. You're watching businessmen from the window. You're chasing the heat death of meaning and reality. Are you getting miserable? No. You're on the internet sharing pictures of shaved huskies that look like bobbleheads. You're trying to lift your head off your body. You're scrolling the psychedelic wallpaper of your feed. You feel everything stretching and shrinking and losing shape. Wonderful. Welcome to Fence Sounds. At the top of the show, we heard Welcome to Paradise Lost by Tarika, followed by the essay Mental Dislocation is a Wonderful Feeling by Carly Stone. Next, we'll hear This View Uncomfortable Slash Averge by Hazel White, Bird of One by Leah Umansky, and an excerpt from 36 Exposures written by Dominic Jekyll, read by Diamanda LaBerge, in collaboration with photographer Hoagie Houghton. Please visit our website, fenceportal.org and fencedigital.com to access these and other wonderful writings and to become a member. The next issue of Fence is coming soon. Till then, be well. Hazel White. My piece is from near the beginning of a new manuscript provisionally titled What's Not the Same as a Purchase. 
It investigates systemic violence, especially the violence of whiteness. I'm reading this in my house uh, on the edge of the Fillmore and Nopa districts in San Francisco. I wrote the work at a studio at Headland Center for the Arts, which is down along the Visadero, out over the Golden Gate Bridge, out along the Rodeo Valley by the ocean. There are old military batteries out there, and it was at one of them, Battery 129, that I did the research for this piece. Two quick things. There are images on fence steaming, and I'm writing in this part of the manuscript about silence and distance as elements of whiteness that let us avoid feeling. I'm grateful to the, the military veterans who spoke to me at the site. This view, uncomfortable, a verge. Marin Headlands Military Batteries, Northern California. Until the body feels something different, it cannot act differently. Diane Juhan. The wall is four and a half feet thick. I meant to begin speaking of violence, and I would write about these tunnels. A tunnel allows a silence to be broken. I've entered these as entering caves, whispering. Instead, I retreat and borrow from Notes on the Underground by Rosalind Williams, which begins, the drive to modify the natural or given environment so that it will be safer, old as humankind. Colonel in the US Army greets me one morning he enlisted in 1984, knows the armpits of war. I sidestep to our view, we're in Headlands Pacific Ocean. He says, in Afghanistan there was hardship. I was engaged with the terrain, we had to move supplies through it. The view of the mountains there was enough, he says. This view, a place where I should feel oddly uncomfortable. I meet Derek, Cal graduate, former intelligence sergeant, U.S. Army Special Forces, on the side of the road. One of his group is carrying a pole with an American flag. I am afraid, have arranged my anti-war values to be certain and clean. But violence is present anyway. For company, I approach a woman in the group. She directs me to him. Battery 129, where I stop each time I visit my writing studio at Headland Center for the Arts, was built to destroy humans, Derek says. The landscape, a choke point. But, he says, once you are in combat, I can't talk about the magnitude. In conditioned deafness, I photograph the light on the rusted gun pit, flirting with volume and the scaled-up vocabulary of war. Others use the site for fashion photo shoots. One day, it's a set for Terminator Genesis. Arnold Schwarzenegger saves us from evil, and the paint is washed off the tunnels the next morning. Yet I am thinking of security all the time. A man who had worked at the Nike nuclear missile site below my studio posted, I wish I could live in a nuclear missile silo. 
I consume violence ordered on the page. A dozen war books rest my restlessness. The stability of text as events become unstable and unintelligible. I go off course, feel. Arrives a biological point of view, morphogenetic capability. Neglect it. The only statement I feel comfortable making is I make cups, says Aaron Toole, potter and ex-marine from the first Gulf War. He listens to veterans' war experiences and makes a cup for each person that includes part of their story. He says the cups can be starting points. He hopes tens of thousands of cups. One was passed around. A woman like me says she could never drink from it. I am mapping muteness with fragments, not articulating the full catastrophe of silence, diffusion, repeating distance. Derek, I like him, is a specialist in analysing body language and speech patterns. You're genuine, he says, or your speech suggests you are. My caring is present and absent, a standoff against what I allow to touch or not touch my skin. I dominate what can reach me. I can disallow hearing to keep inside and outside separate and not stir the peripheral sensations. Or wait for orders, the civility of sequence, a snowdrop and then only later a primrose, a body offline locked against disturbance, making for a volatile consciousness, trains of action cut short, a confused text and yet seemingly a necessary text, to associate feeling with response by writing something on paper. Derek's civilian group started at 9pm the previous evening, 40 miles, 25 hours, no sleep, 50-pound packs, little food, cold surf, the Go Ruck Heavy Challenge to, quote, make better Americans. He thanks me for my effort at understanding. Courage is not nothing, he says. I go the distance until my eye declines, prefers to shelter a familiar powerlessness. I tidy my corner. This is a quote from Bachelard. I tidy my corner, a haven that ensures us that one of the things we prize most highly, immobility, it is the sure place. Bare end of a year arrives suddenly, porter toilet doors banging in the wind, tunnels frigid. Landscape raw with consequences, too late now that each rain counts, each instance of erosion. This is a space that is going backward into itself for a very strong confrontation. I am the white adoptive mother of Jay, a young black man. I have loved him for 23 years. He was 11 when I had to tell him Oscar Grant was killed by transit police nearby. Later on his newsfeed, the murdered body of Michael Brown on the street for four hours his mother behind police tape. Another mother says she knows what she will wear when the call comes. 
I delay undressing for bed, gambling with a knock on the door. This is a quote from Gwen Woods. Had known him would not have been afraid. And from Dominic Archibald, how impact into words. At 10.01 a.m., alone in the tunnel, I yell with others across the country, hands up. Rage breaks, I hate and I weep, I crave a strong muscular motion, I itch, I kick at the world, I must articulate, I will insist. I will go off guard, write this. Although whiteness trained not to recognize and integrate itself in that peril, how? You think I'm a killing machine, don't you? A marine interrupts. Wait. Will I know, reach fast enough? A white person is the danger. The ungrieved grow strongly now outside the body on a verge. I write it as a fruit harvested without efficiency. I mean to hand onto the page something ripe, too ripe, even as it skins us. Withholding was the manners of my British whiteness. Excuse me, reader, I wasn't open to you. I am dragging now from a British river a shape into the verge pile. The British river is the River Avon, which is at um, Bristol, which is a, a major port in the transatlantic slave trade. I am dragging now from a Bristol river a shape into the verge pile excavating a mud bank of clogged speech, as in Derek's veterans know something. I love talking about it, he says. Not self-sufficiency, but flood toward a turning to, back into the world, to write something better than this. Thank you. Hi, this is Leah Umansky. I'm going to be reading a new poem called Bird of One that's online now at Fence.
I'm reading this from New York City, where it feels like winter. Bird of one, one. My mother always told me that everything is scary the first time you do it. Sometimes I have to remind myself, self, it's okay to be scared. Be scared, then get over it. There are not so many givens anymore. Two, I just celebrated another Hanukkah, the festival of lights. Jack says the holiday invites us to be lights ourselves. A light, a glow, a light inflamed, a light burning on the edge, but simmering in light, in capture, a light in rapture, a light kept in holding, flame within flame within flame. Three, the body is a temple I must restore. Sometimes I take out the stones from the wall and put them back together again. I take out the stones and sit there, imagining a new wall, a new way, and then I quiet it. I am not an escapologist. I can't escape. I've actually been grounding myself in earth, in trees, in birds, and blues. I've been returning to nature, to the body and the body of the world. Sometimes I lose myself in fear, but then I return to rebuild. Sometimes I take myself out of it all. I take out all the eyes, and then I put them back in. I belong. It's okay to be scared. Four, I try to be a good explorer. I explore my breath and my limbs, my logic and my reasoning, my trips and falls and my loves. I know the love story. I explore, I idea, I sun, I moon, but always it is a way of exploring the inevitable. I don't know why there is always a goal. Why is there a goal? Five, astrobiologist Natalie Cabral says, it is not so much what it is, but the journey it took to get here. I understand the journey, the walk, the walkthrough of the days and how the dream is to get there. But the dream should really be the walk, the steps, the smells, the light. If I hurry, I'll never relax. And if I never relax, it will be endless. She continues, and the sacrifice might be your own life. Six, it might be my own life. It might be something I explore, I expunge to reconstruct. A second version of myself within myself, flame within flame. These things can vanish overnight. These things can vanish. They can disappear. A glimpse gone, something thrifted, stolen, thieved away, Sidled, rid, riddled, raided, ransacked. Seven, I am a bird of one. February 1st. I came home intending to get out my encyclopedia. 
keener than ever to improve my acquaintance with the natural world. Harry Matthews, The Journalist, 1994 In one picture, I am at a bar and I'm reading a book. It's the only picture we have right now. And we're sitting still, but the mind runs to other places, like when we were on the move and the windows are closed, forming that kind of dust translucent skin as we run under someone else's sun. And there are two people in that picture, and neither of them could hear the motor. Neither you, nor I, us, or we. And the two of them in the frame, you could search for their connotations, the right associations, but all that there was was silence, miles, and miles, and miles, and miles of it leveling itself out. It's an equation, simply stated, a mathematics for animals in motion. Me now metrics me, and you are, of course, as you are an imperial subject, tethering yourself to things, to tables, and chairs, and beautiful places. Everything's an adjective, and you are the driver, the driver, to the passive passenger beside you. And I am something else. And as we move, we are dealing in silences, and no longer in distances, and in love with that idea, and become a joke on the concrete as we'd move along, a joke that we're happily reaching for. It would drift and bleed, Drift and bleed and bunch in like bedsheets as a feeling. It, it shuttled towards a kind of formalism, a way or a style, a manner of speaking or a means of working. An advocate for some formal jealousy, conceptual rhyme. We've garlands of big and blooming flowers, a magnolia or a line looking for its couplet or a sculpture that wants to be a song, a, a key with designs on a hinge or a lock. And our love would read like a lookbook of... 21st century interpretations of 20th century experiments. And morally, ours would be as empty as everyone else's. And It's always horrific and sentimental and quiet, but we could share in the horror, keep it for ourselves. There was always something there to, to share, and enough of it for two, for dinner, bread, water. We're clipped by signs of the road. It's signals and as we both name ourselves after it now and now and now the signs all carry a little law the light no stars remember the highway cipher in other places you're thinking you are thinking they would say of adopting a highway they would say lighting out as always for greener pastures just any elsewhere and the lights how they would always flicker here and here and here and here and gently gently they would mark the passage of time at 1 25th of a second we have a glimpse and at 25 we have the mississippi on and on and on click click and knowing a car was a retrospective in an old and frustrating museum but it doesn't matter now we're here and here and then here and we've a register for this quiet like moon river or something else and another song and Looking down at the glass was like seeing the light gleam on a river caged in by water, like seeing oil and water, a variety of colors, bleeding all over the place at any pace, regardless of destination. The light would move quicker than we would, and 
You are thinking of adopting a highway of finding the room to breathe and sitting in that bar headed for a white pillow-like sun. I'm a large automobile, always moving on and on and on and on and on. And I'd head home, intending to get out my encyclopedia, keener than ever, wanting to improve my acquaintance with the natural world work out what my paleonomy might look like, a word that could run like an adopted highway as far as we could take it, a word like, like sayonara, or a phrase like, so long.
Fence is created by Jason Zuzka, Emily Wallace-Hughes, Tonya Foster, Paul Legault, Fareed Matuk, Soham Patel, Charles Valley, Max Winter, Rav Grewal-Koch, Harris Lottie, Gabriel Louise, Ashley Main, Zuan Juliana Wang, Sarah Faulkner, Karina Rips-Shaming, Brandon Shinoda, James Bellflower, Menachem Kaiser, and Nick Slackman. The songs Welcome to Paradise Lost and Old Gloves are from Tarika's self-titled debut album. You can find out more at tarika.org. Fence is a not-for-profit that publishes with the help of members, organizations, and institutions. To make a tax-deductible donation to Fence, please go to fenceportal.org. Thank you.